Hey everybody, it's the With a Bullet Podcast. I'm Matt Golden. Uh, we're on to part two of our series on the decline of alternative rock radio. Uh, the chart for this installment is the alternative chart from September 16th, 1995. And this was the chart that more or less gave birth to this series. Um, initially, I was just planning on doing an episode the episode that we did last week from 1994 as a standalone episode. Uh, but I wasn't really sure about that one. I knew I wanted to do an alternative chart, but I wasn't sure that if 1994 was the right year. So I was thinking, okay, what's on the um, 95 charts for September? And then I checked it out and I was thinking to myself, wow, that's noticeably worse. So uh, what's on the 96 chart? And I was like, ah, you know, that one's even worse than 95. I wonder if this pattern continues. Um, well, it did. And by the time I made it to 99, I had it in my mind to do this as a series. So really, this is all 1995's fault. And I actually noticed the decline at the time. And I wrote a really cringeworthy page-long editorial in my school newspaper about it. And I actually still have a copy of this. And it is so bad. I'm just going to pull it out here. I'm covering every single target except for... Um, the Rembrandts in this episode, which is kind of funny. Uh, but here's the opening paragraph, which I should have just used as the intro of this episode without comment. Anyway, here's the 17-year-old the me. 1995, for many music fans like me, was an extremely disappointing year. One hit wonder after one hit wonder. Annoying gimmick after annoying gimmick. This year was repetitive and all over nauseating. This year proves that each period of great music is followed by mediocrity. Alternative or modern rock is breathing its last breath after being strangled by a corporate America that only wants to sell more CDs. And then I just slag a bunch of bands um, uh, to be 17 again. Um, anyway, on that note, uh, let's just get into this uh, with number 40. And number 40 was um, PM Dawn with Downtown Venus. Um, my first thought when I saw this on the chart was, what the hell is PM Dawn doing on an alternative chart from 1995? And then I listened to the song, and I actually remembered hearing this one on the radio from time to time. Um, it's built around three or four samples from the intro um, to Deep Purple's um, version of Hush. Um, it's more or less a straight up alternative song. They aren't rapping here. It kind of blends in well with the rest of the chart. Um, this was their only entry on the alternative charts. Um, it peaked at number 39, so only one spot higher than this. And I kind of like this, but then again, I also really like um, Deep Purple's version of Hush. 39, uh, Matthew Sweet, Sick of Myself. Great power pop song. Um, this was from Sweet's 100% Fun album. Uh, the title of that was a response to Kurt Cobain. Um, in Kurt Cobain's suicide note, he said that the worst crime that I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending that I'm having 100% fun. So Matthew Sweet read that and said, you know, hey, that's an album title. Um, whether he was faking it or not, too, um, who knows? But I read through most of the contemporary reviews of that album, and it seemed like the running theme 
was that critics really wanted to slag him like he was too uncool for their their taste but eventually they gave in and enjoyed the album um and this song i assume um on the album he was joined on guitar by punk legends um, richard loy of television and robert klein of richard hell and the voidoids uh, the same guys who played on marky moon and the blank generation they also worked with him on his uh, girlfriend and alter beast albums i mean you don't really think of those guys as power pop guys but they do do an amazing job here and this song was sweet's biggest hit um it was actually the only one that crossed over onto the hot 100 um, i was kind of surprised that girlfriend wasn't also a, a hot 100 hit um it seemed like a pretty sizable hit at the time but i guess it wasn't and this is also the second biggest charts hit from an act that was originally from nebraska um matthew sweet was born in nebraska he couldn't beat out um, randy meisner's never been in love but he did beat out uh, 311's cover of the cure's love song by one spot and we will be hearing from 311 in this series but unfortunately this will be the last time for sweet number 38 um you two hold me thrill me kiss me kill me uh, this was from the soundtrack of Batman Forever, um, the Val Kilmer Batman. Um, Jim Carrey played the Riddler. Tommy Lee Jones played Two-Face in that one. If you want, you can look up some articles about their onset feud. But anyway, uh, the soundtrack for this is possibly the only place on Earth where um, Brandy, Nick Cave, Method Man, and Sunny Day of Real Estate have ever been brought together. Um, there are a lot of soundtrack songs on this chart. I'm just warning you about that. But this song was more or less um, an outtake from their Zuropa album. I mean, it's about being in a band and being a star. Um, you two kind of sticking with what they know there. And um, initially, Bono was supposed to be in the Batman Forever movie as his McFisto character, uh, which he introduced like in the Zuroba tour, which was basically like a glammed up version of the devil, but he couldn't fit the movie into his schedule. So he just sent them this outtake instead. And it's pretty typical of the Octung baby of Zuroba era U2. I mean, there's nothing really special about it. It was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Song and a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Original Song. And it actually lost both of those. Uh, this was the number one on here for four weeks um, in June and July, uh, which would have been right around when Batman Forever was released. And um, it was their fourth alternative number one of the 90s. And they would make it two more times before the decade is over. Uh, this was a big international hit. Um, it went to number one in eight different countries. Uh, the U.S. was the only country where this didn't actually make the top 10 on the uh, regular top 40 charts. But like I said in our last episode, uh, the top 40 was pretty much its own genre at this point. Number 37, Hole, uh, was softer softest. Um, Hole had just wrapped up a stint on Lollapalooza. Uh, a stint which was marred by various um, Courtney Love antics. Uh, she lap slapped Kathleen Hanna backstage. Um, she feuded with Sonic Youth. Um, Sonic Youth were the actual headliners of the show. Um, Hole came on before them, and most of the crowd disappeared at the start of their set, mainly because they were there to see like whatever outlandish shit um, 
Courtney would like either say or do in her set, uh, which kind of irked Sonic Youth. And they were also uh, friends with Kathleen Hanna, so they were kind of irked about that too. And she supposedly drove Sinead O'Connor off of the tour. Uh, this is at least according to Holes guitarist Eric Erlinson. Uh, supposedly they went to breakfast together one morning. And then like later that afternoon, Sinead announced that she was leaving the tour. Um, Sinead actually denies this, by the way. So who knows if that's actually the truth. And Courtney even got into it with Bob Nastanovich from Pavement of All People. Probably the last person in any 90s band that I can imagine of getting into a tiff with anybody. But she threw a salsa jar backstage and he was pissed off that somebody else was going to have to clean it up instead of her. Um, that tour is very well documented because half of the people who were on that tour were blogging. Um, this is when their publicists still allowed that sort of thing. And also because this was the last real Lollapalooza, um, Perry Farrell basically just gave up and booked Metallica the year after this. So um, it was done, I guess. But anyway, enough about um, Courtney Love's antics and Lollapalooza. Um, let's get into her music. Uh, this was the last single from the Live Through This album, which is a pretty decent album. And I'd say out of the four that came off of this album, this was the weakest. Um, it, it was first performed in 1991, around the same time that their first album, Pretty on the Inside, came out. Uh, the song was originally called P-Girl. And if you look at some of Hole's early song titles, um, that fits right in there with... Um, Teenage Horror, um, Dick Nail, and um, R Word Girl. Um, P Girl is mentioned in the choruses for this. Uh, the line is P Girl, P, uh, P Girl gets the belt. I was never really sure if it was about like a girl getting punished for like bedwetting or wetting herself, or it was just like some weird kink thing. I mean, with Courtney, it could really be both. You never know. <laughs> this was. Only one of two songs from this album where we know for sure that Kurt Cobain had any part of the recording. Um, he pops up and helps out with the background vocals towards the end of the song. Um, he's buried in the mix and he was uncredited, but everybody who was there at the sessions say that he did contribute to this one. Um, th this only peaked at number 32, um, which I was kind of surprised by, but... We will hear from Hole again in a couple episodes, so um, good for them. Uh, number 36, um, we have Hum With Stars. I don't think I ever listened to this whole song when it was actually getting played on alternative radio. I usually only made it as far as like the early false ending after the second, she thinks she missed the train tomorrow, she's out back counting stars, because... I thought there was absolutely no way that anything that came after that could possibly be decent. And I always caught this song at the very start for some reason. I never caught it in the middle. I was like, oh God, it's that fucking star song again. It was always, she thinks she missed the train to Mars, followed by me mashing the button to get to like the end or the buzzard or whatever channel wasn't playing this. And I didn't really think about these guys at all after this until a few years later when I would always seem to run into devoted hum fans on various message boards. And I was always like hum. Um, 
the train from Mars band, really. I And even then, I didn't bother to check out what I was missing there. So this pops up on this 95 chart. I was like, oh, well, you know, I might actually might as well actually listen to this. I mean, I've listened to full Queensryche and Striper albums for this show. I mean, how bad could a five minute long hum song possibly be? Well, it isn't bad. Um, The 17 year old version of me was totally wrong about this. It sounds like a shoegaze band trying to play new metal or a new metal band trying to play shoegaze. Uh, take your pick on that one. And I mean that in a good way, too. It rocks, I guess. Um, I didn't like it enough to become part of the devoted hum cult or even like enough to like check out the rest of the if you prefer an astronaut album. But it is decent. Um, this peaked at number 11, and um, Howard Stern may have played a role in it becoming hit. Um, apparently, he used to gush about how much he loved this song on his show. So um, uh, they could thank Howard Stern for them being here. Anyway, um, number 35, uh, Lisa Loeb, Do You Sleep? Uh, return appearance for Lisa here, um, second week in a row. Uh, this was her first single since Stay. And it was the first single from her debut album, Tales. Uh, technically, Stay was also on that album, so it could be considered the first single. But it was on a soundtrack, and Tales didn't exist yet. So, you know, who cares? This one originally popped up on Lisa's um, Purple Tape album, which was her album-length demo, which she shipped out to various labels back in 95. Um, like I mentioned in the last episode... Um, none of these labels were interested at the time, and none of them got back to her until uh, Stay actually became a hit. And she did eventually re release this album commercially, too. Um, but anyway, the, the, the song isn't bad. I mean, there's nothing really special about it. It's just kind of like baseline Will Affair type stuff. Um. It did peak at number 20 on this chart, um, did slightly better on the regular top 40. Uh, it wasn't a smash-like stay. Uh, this was her last appearance on the alternative charts, um, but she did have another decent-sized hit a couple years after this on the regular top 40 and the alternative, or uh, on the adult contemporary charts with um, I Do in 1998. But anyway, moving right along, um, Number 34, we have David Bowie with uh, The Heart's Filthy Lesson. Industrial era Bowie. Um, it does not get better than this. Um, this was from the Outside album, a concept album, uh, which was influenced by Twin Peaks and took place in a fictional small town in New Jersey. Um, this album was the first time that Bowie had worked with um, Brian Eno since um, the Berlin Trilogy. And um, for the lyrics, he did something that was kind of unique. Um, he had a Mac program, which basically like chopped up like um, pieces of writing and then like re-pieced it back together. And he kind of used that to um, write all of the lyrics on this album, including The Heart's Filthy Lesson. Um, kind of interesting route to go with the lyrics there. Uh, but this song was his first hint entry on the hot 100 in eight years um first one since don't let me down or never let me down i mean it, but it only peaked at number 92 
Um, it was played over the closing credits of Seven. So after uh, Brad Pitt shoots um, Kevin Spacey, you would hear this. Um, it's not Bowie's best work by any means. I mean, really, anything after like 1980 isn't going to be <laughs> his best work. But um, shortly after this, he went on tour with um, Nine Inch Nails as his opening act, which um, confused a lot of people who I knew were Nine Inch Nails fans. But this song is definitely like in Nine Inch Nails territory. And he collaborated with Trent again, or at least Trent was in the um, I'm Afraid of American videos after this. So, yeah. But anyway, um, on to number 33. Um, Innocence Mission with Bright as Yellow. Um, they were from Pennsylvania. Um, they were led by a husband and wife duo, um, Don and Karen Paris. Uh, they played what could probably be described as alternative folk or indie folk, but they also um, dabbled in straight up Christian music from time to time. And this song um, appeared on the Empire Records soundtrack. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, so I couldn't tell you exactly where this pops up in there and i didn't really feel like revisiting that movie either because it's horrible um but anyway that movie would be released about a week after this and we actually have a couple more songs from the soundtrack coming up and uh, the soundtrack came up came out on AM records and um it innocence mission were on AM at the time so um that's probably why they're on here um, the song sounds an awful lot like Mazzy Star uh, to the point at the time I thought this might have been Mazzy Star. I also kind of wondered what happened to um, Hope Sandoval's voice because it is slightly brighter than hers. But this was um, its peak on the chart and this was their only ever appearance on the alternative charts. But they are still around and they actually put out their most recent album, um, just a couple of years ago. Number 32, a collective soul with December uh, barf. Uh, these were one of the guys who I actually slagged in that high school um, newspaper article. I actually said that they should die in a plane crash. <laughs> a little harsh, but I, I, I still don't like these guys. <laughs> um, this was the first single from their self-titled album, which uh, band leader Ed Roland considers their debut because their first album was essentially a demo, but I mean, who really cares? Um, based on the chorus, I and pretty much everyone else on the earth um, assumed that this one was about getting a blowjob, um, which shattered any illusions that I had about these guys being Christian rock. But it's not about that. It's about getting screwed over by your manager, and he's just kind of venting about that. Uh, the rest of the band hated this song, and um, Roland basically had to beg them to do it. Uh, but they went along with it after he made a, a few changes to the song, like adding the song title to the lyrics. Um, initially, that was not in there. But the title, if you're wondering, um, came because um, Ed Roland thought that this was the end of the story. Uh, which I'm assuming referred to his relationship with his manager. Um, and he wanted it to be clear that it was the end of the story, but he didn't want to call it the end. So he thought 
you know, December comes at the end of the year. Why don't I call it that? Um, okay. But um, it doesn't come at the end of the album, though, which is kind of weird. Um, you'd figure that a song that was meant to be in the end would be at the end of the album. And the album did have 12 tracks, so maybe he should have just called them all, you know, January, February, March, and so on until you get to this one at the end, you know. Um, a missed opportunity for a collective soul, I guess. And um, MTV used this one as background music a lot at the time. Um, they would play the intro to this while, like, the VJ was doing their spiel or whatever, or it'd pop up in whatever the current real-world season was. I, I think they were up to London or Miami at this point. Who knows? Or it came out on MTV News a lot when, like, Kurt Loder or Tabitha Soren was talking about something serious. But anyway, um, peaked at number two on this chart, which was actually their highest charting single here. Um, it also topped the mainstream rock charts and made it to number 20 on the regular top 40. But anyway, um, moving on, um, number 31, we have Blues Traveler with Runaround. I was really surprised that this one popped up on here because I could have sworn to God that this was a hit in like 92 or 93. Um they were a jam band. Um, they were led by harmonica player um, John Popper. Um, they initially came together in high school in New Jersey. Um, they were originally known as the Establishment or the Establishment Blues Band or Black Cat Jam before coming up with Blues Traveler. Uh, the Traveler part comes from Ghostbusters. Um, yeah, they named their band after Gozer, believe it or not. But they all ended up going to college in New York and um, played regularly around New York. And by regularly, I mean they had like nightly gigs at various clubs around New York before they um, ended up landing a regular gig at the Wetlands, which was sort of like the CBGBs of like the 90s New York jam band scene, I guess. And they picked up almost a dead-like following around New York. And since almost all of the major music media was based in New York. You heard about these guys being like the, the next big thing for years before it actually happened. So maybe that's why I thought this was a hit back in 1992. Um, the, the song isn't really that bad, but I just got kind of sick of hearing this one over and over again. Um, it did peak at number 14 on this chart, and it was a, a top 10 hit on both the regular top 40 and the adult contemporary charts. And also won a Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a Group or Duo. And at the same time, these guys were also running a tour that was sort of like a competitor to Lollapalooza. It was like the the jam band version of Lollapalooza. And I think it kept going for a couple of years after Lollapalooza. So they won. Blues Traveler won out there. <laughs> but, uh, number 30, live, live, these guys again. Uh, this was the fourth single from it's, uh, the song is all over you, by the way. Uh, this was the fourth single from their throwing copper album. And, uh, thanks to the gap between the two charts, um, we're going to skip right over lightning crashes, which I'm really disappointed by. That was, that was a big hit, like in the interim between, this chart and the last one that I did. Um, but out, out of all of their singles from this album, I've always found this one to be the most tolerable, mainly because it's just a straightforward rock song. 
it is live so it is slightly annoying though i mean they didn't make a video for this one um so unfortunately everybody was spared for from like ed kowalczyk mugging for the camera or like the drummer running around like a jackass this time around uh, this one did make it up to number four, um, which was their fourth straight top 10 hit on this chart. And we will be hearing again from them later, um, believe it or not. Yay. Uh, 29, Elastica with Stutter. Um, mostly female band from the UK. Um, their drummer was a guy, though. Uh, They're led by Justine Frischman, who was a former member of Suede or the London suede as they're being called in this country in 95. Um, they first broke through in this country with connection a few months before this. And like whole, they were just coming off of Lollapalooza where they uh, replaced Sinead O'Connor after uh, Courtney Love supposedly drove her away. Uh, but this song was actually their first ever single. Um, it was put out in limited release towards the end of 1993 in the UK and Despite it being a limited release, it still managed to scrape the very bottom of the UK charts. And it was being trotted out again here as a follow-up to um, Connection in North America. And the song is more or less um, pop punk. It's um, honestly not that much different than some of the stuff on Dookie. And really, I mean, most of their debut album is like that. I mean, it's like the missing link between Dookie and The Strokes. Um, if you had to describe it. But the song is about um, Justine's boyfriend not being able to get it up when he was drunk. And she um, dated Damon Albarn from Blur for most of the 90s. So it's pretty safe to assume that this one is about him. Um, probably a bigger embarrassment for him than like Noel Gallagher calling him a nipple or whatever um, he called him. But um, this made it all the way up to number 10 on this chart. And number 67 on the Hot 100. Um, this was their last appearance on that chart, but they did make it again here with their third single, Car Song, which isn't as good as this one or um, Connection. Uh, but they only put out one more album after this, which came about five years later, and it was almost an entirely different lineup. And um, since then, Justine Frischman has focused mainly on painting and... Um, Guitarist Donna Matthews um, ended up taking a weird left turn and became a missionary. Uh, she actually has a YouTube channel where she just posts worship songs. It's pretty odd. But anyway, um, number 28, Sponge uh, with Molly, um, 16 candles down the drain in parentheses there. Uh, these guys are from Detroit. Um, they were essentially a reconfigured version of um, early 90s funk metal band called Loud House. Uh, basically, the lead singer of that group left. Uh, the drummer took his place, and they hired another drummer to play the drums for him, and then they changed their name to Sponge. Um, those guys, As Loud House, they only put out one album, and they made an appearance on the Point Break soundtrack with a a cover of Smoke on the Water, um, kind of a running deep purple theme here, um, which more or less um, sounds like D-grade um, Faith No More. It's it's really bad. That's the only song I could find by those guys. Their album isn't on Spotify, but that song is horrible. But anyway, um, they were back as Sponge 
um, different form a little bit better. <laughs> this was the the third single from their Rotting Pinata album. Um, the second one to chart after Plowed. I've never heard the first single before this week, and it's called um, Nina Menasha after the the towns in Wisconsin. And I, I lived near both of those towns for a few years. And I can't imagine why anyone would write a song about either one of them. But I'm glad that Sponge decided to rep the Fox Cities anyway. But based on the title, um, you might think that this one is about Molly Ringwald. Uh, she was in 16 Candles. Her name's Molly. Seems like a pretty safe bet. But no, it's only partially about her. I mean, And really, it's just the title is about her. I mean, it's mostly about a story that they heard about a 16-year-old girl um, proposing um, one of her teachers or uh, basically offering to do something for one of her teachers, um, getting turned down and um, attempting suicide. Kind of depressing. A um, little bit more depressing than um, having to give your bedroom up to your grandparents or getting harassed by Farmer Ted or your sister bearing an oily bohunk. Um, but this one is a little bit better than I remember it being, um, but it's still not really that great. Um, it peaked at number 11 and did a little bit better on the mainstream rock charts. It did get to number five there. Uh, they made it back onto the charts one more time after this with Wax Static, and they're still around. And they're regulars on the alternative oldie circuit. Yes, there is such a thing. Um, they were out on tour with the Gin Blossoms and uh, Fastball last year. Number 27, we have Soul Asylum with Just Like Everyone. Uh, this was more or less the last gasp for Soul Asylum. Um, this wasn't their last charting single, but this was the last one that I remember hearing on the radio or seeing on MTV. Um, something which you probably would not have expected in September of 95. I mean, they had a number one hit on this chart just four months before this. I mean, surely they had another runaway train or black gold in them. Uh, nope, they're done. I actually have a little theory about a band that we have coming up later on this chart, more or less replacing them or essentially knocking them out of their chair at the alt rock table. But I don't want to give that away yet. Okay. It was the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, they came to prominence right at the same time that soul asylum started to slip away. Uh, they more or less sounded the same. And while soul asylum was like off in the bathroom or taking a smoke break, uh, they just went and stole their seat. And, it wasn't like Soul Asylum could have like pulled up another chair. I mean, there was only room at the table for one band like this. And without the Goo Goos having like really good timing, um, maybe Soul Asylum would have stuck around. Um, maybe they would have had an another runaway train or another black gold. Um, who knows? Um, alternative history here. Uh, but anyway, this song is pretty typical of them. Uh, the video for this starred Claire Danes, who I think at the time was still on My So-Called Life. Um, I was, wasn't sure if they had canceled it yet or not. Uh, but anyway, she ends up turning into an angel at the end of this video. It's pretty bad. But anyway, um, number 26, uh, the Dave Matthews Band with Ants Marching. I don't like Dave Matthews Band at all. 
I never understood why they even became popular. Um, it's the blandest, most boring shit. Uh, they're, they're like the James Taylor of this era. Um, unfortunately, they are going to be popping up a few more times in this series. This was the second single from their Under, Table, Under the Table and Dreaming album. And the title of that comes from a lyric in this song. Uh, the song is mainly about suburban people getting caught in a routine and not being able to really live. Uh, there's been a hundred songs with the same theme as this, and almost all of them are better than this. And this was another one of those songs where I just like changed the channel immediately. If I heard like the violin or Dave Matthews scat singing, I was out of there. Um, unfortunately, this one was played about a hundred times more than the hum song that I mentioned earlier. So I couldn't completely avoid it. So unfortunately, I did have to hear it. But uh, this one did as well on this chart as it did on the dull contemporary charts, which um, isn't really surprising, I guess. But anyway, at number 25, we have Toadies with um, Possum Kingdom. Uh, Toadies were from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, their name came from a Minutemen song. And if you've ever heard that Minutemen song, um, Toadies isn't exactly a positive term, but they went with it for their name anyway. Uh, the members of this band initially came together while working at the same record store in Fort Worth. And... Um, eventually came out with this song. Um, Possum Kingdom um, actually takes its name from a lake in North Texas, believe it or not. Um, lead singer um, Vaden Todd Lewis's family made regular trips out there when he was a kid. And this song was rumored to be about either a vampire or a serial killer at the time, but it's not about either one of those things. It's about a cult. It's about a cult operating around Possum Kingdom Lake in Texas. And I actually like this song a lot more than I did back in 1995. I didn't really mind it back then, but I also didn't really think that much about it at the time. It just kind of blended in on alternative rock radio. It didn't really seem like it was anything really all that special. And then about a decade ago, I heard this on the radio again, I was just completely blown away about it, by it. it. I mean, it was like, has this song always been this good? I don't remember it being this good. I mean, how did I miss the boat with this one? And this is probably the best song on the entire chart, actually, or at least I think it is. It is more or less just a pixie song. I mean, all you really need is for the lead singer to say something in like Spanglish gibberish, like Frank Black and, You'd be 100% there, but it's done really well. It's a really good Pixies homage, I guess. And the structure of the song is really unique. Um, they go through about four different verses before they actually get to the chorus, uh, which doesn't actually come until like the two and a half minute mark in the song. And each one of these verses is a little bit more tense than the one that came before it. It's a really good build up to the chorus. And then it just kind of all gets let out. Um, according to the band, this song was really popular with strippers, which they sort of um, say is a factor in its success. I don't really believe that, but maybe there were a lot of strippers out there <laughs> sticking to this one. Uh, this did peak at number four. Uh, they did have another alternative hit with Away, um, 
a song that I barely remember and one that sounds even more like the Pixies than this one. Their second album ended up being rejected by their label Interscope. So they didn't actually get to follow this up until 2001. And they more or less just dissolved after that. Um, They have re- since reunited and they're part of the alternative oldies circuit that I mentioned earlier. Um, They've done tours with Everclear, Fuel, Local H, and Reverend Horton Heat. So you can probably catch the toadies out there if you want to. Number 24, uh, Tripping Daisy with I Got a Girl. Um, Another band from Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, I didn't really like this song back in 1995. And after listening to this for the first time in like 20 years, it is still pretty annoying. Um, Every single line in the song is like, I got a girl. She blah, 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 fill in the blank. And for the record, his girl loves her dog, stares in the mirror, blames it on her period, loves soul, dances to disco, wears cool shoes, speaks her mind. She's small. She knocks down walls. She won't hold his hand, has girlfriends, and has another guy. Um, There, I spoiled the entire song for you. Uh, This was a fairly decent-sized hit on this chart. It peaked at number six. Uh, They would have one more minor alternative hit with Piranha right after this one, which might actually be more annoying than this one somehow. I don't know how that's possible, but it it is. And uh, two of these guys, um, lead singer Tim DeLather, or Tim DeLaughter, and uh, bass player um, Tim Pirro ended up founding Polyphonic Spree, um, an indie rock group with a shtick that was more or less um, the Flaming Lips if they were in a cult. Uh, They had about 30 members. They all wore choir robes. And they had a hit, and that's hit with quotation marks, uh, with Light and Day. And that song ended up like popping up in a ton of commercials and movie trailers around like 2003 or 2004 or so. And as far as I know, they're still around out there in their robes playing somewhere. So you could probably catch them on the oldies circuit also. <laughs> but 23, um, The Catherine Wheel. Um, with Judy staring at the sun. Um, They were a British band. Um, Their lead singer and guitarist, Rob Dickinson, is the cousin of Iron Maiden frontman Bruce Dickinson. And aside from both of them being named after, or both of the bands being named after medieval torture devices and both being fronted by Dickinson's, they have absolutely nothing in common. So if you're an Iron Maiden fan, um, you probably shouldn't check these guys out but anyway i don't remember hearing this song on the radio at all um maybe it was getting played everywhere but cleveland i mean who knows about that but they teamed up with um belly singer and a former member of throwing muses and the breeders tanya donnelly on this one and the version that they released as a single was more or less a duet between um dickinson and her and she only chimes in on the chorus on the album version, um, unfortunately. I like the single. I'm not really a fan of what's on the album. Um, It's better with her in there. Um, This one peaked just one spot ahead of this. Uh, These guys would make it back to the alternative charts a couple times after this, but oddly enough, this would be the final appearance for for Tanya Donnelly. Uh, Belly broke up in 95 and she never made it back as a solo artist. So 
um, goodbye to Tanya. 22, um, Heather Nova with Walk This World. Um, Heather's from Bermuda. Uh, from Bermuda. Um, as far as I know, we've never had anybody from Bermuda on this podcast before, and we probably won't have another one again. It's a pretty small island. Uh, this is another one of those songs that I didn't really think about or didn't really notice at the time, but it was much better when I listened to it again in, two, in 2022. I mean, I'm not saying that it's great or anything, but it is like better than I remember. It's sort of like Alanis Morissette, but better, I guess. I, I'm assuming the hook in the chorus of where she passionately sings, I want you to come. I was probably a big factor in this one getting on the radio. Uh, the video for this was actually directed by Zack Snyder of, of 300 and Justice League fame. And it literally follows Heather around the world. She's in Venice. She's in Paris. She's in Istanbul. Um, she's in London. She's out on Coney Island. It's the Phil Collins Take Me Home video for the 90s is what it is. And um, this was her only appearance on this chart. Um, this made it up to number 13. Um, but she is still around. Um, she's still somewhat popular in continental Europe. And she actually put out an album earlier this year. So uh, good for Heather. Uh, 21, I'm live with White Discussion. Uh, yeah, it's live again. And this time they're being serious. I mentioned this in the last episode, but um, these guys like often like tried to be profound and it usually just ended up being kind of dumb. Uh, this song definitely fits into that category. Um, this one is about the heated political climate of uh, Bill Clinton's first term. Uh, yeah, it, it's more or less about how t the two sides arguing with each other uh, won't accomplish anything. And um, in it, um, Ed Kowalczyk manages to rhyme politically correct with erect, as in being erect. <laughs> uh, there's a sample towards the end of this um, where there's somebody talking about the end of the world, um, which I remember either MTV or, radio, or the radio saying that was a sample of Jim Jones, but apparently it was just some preacher that Ed Kowalczyk... Um, stumbled on on the radio while he was on tour and just recorded him um nobody knows exactly who it was um that's really the only interesting thing about this song uh, this was the only song from throwing copper to not to not make the top 10 on this charts so darn um number 20 candle box uh simple lessons Candlebox is back. Um, I barely remember this song. Um, it rocks more than Far Behind or You, I guess, but it still kind of sucks. I, I checked out the video and I barely remember that either. It's the whole video is just various shady types and the guys from Candlebox themselves getting their mug shots taken. And I didn't realize that Candlebox was in the video until the very end where they all pop up together because they kind of bled in with everybody else in the video. And also, I didn't have the the slightest clue what any of the guys in Candlebox looked like. So it got to the end. I was just like, oh, those guys are Candlebox. Uh, they look like deviants, I guess. But <laughs> I forgot to mention this in the last episode, but... 
Uh, the lead singer of Candlebox, Kevin Martin, and their guitarist, Sean Hennessy. Um, at one point, we're in a super group with the non-Ed Kowalczyk members of Live, which was called The Gracious Few. Uh, they put out one album, and it kind of went nowhere. Um, I figured since um, we just had Live on before this, um, I'd bring that up. You know, why not? Um, bring up their failures. Um, <laughs> anyway... On to number 19, um, Rancid with Time Bomb. Uh, this one's a harbinger of doom. The sky is coming. The sky is coming. Um, at the time, I wrote these off guys off as just like total clash ripoff. So I was, at the time, I was thinking, oh, this might must be their attempt at like Rudy Can't Fail or like White Man at Hammersmith Palais. That's basically all that I thought it was. I, I didn't know that two of the guys in Rancid, uh, lead singer Tim Armstrong and bass player Matt Freeman, were uh, members of Operation Ivy and the Dance Hall Crashers, who were two actual ska bands. And ska was sort of seeping in a little. I remember that WAPS, which was sort of like the public ask access station in Akron, uh, did have a ska show on the weekends. But I mainly saw it as like a quirky novelty thing. I mean, they also had like a polka show on that station. And I didn't realize, I wasn't realizing at the time that like in two years, we'd have like millions of ska bands out there. I mean, I swear to God, at least like a quarter of the bands out there in the world in 1997 were ska bands. But anyway, as far as 90s ska revival songs go, I mean, this one really isn't that bad. I like it more than I did back in 1995, I guess. These were one of the guys who I like slagged in that newspaper article. So um, I was sort of wrong again about them, I guess. But anyway, uh, this peaked at number eight on the charts, if you're wondering. Number 18... Edwin Collins with A Girl Like You. Um, this is another song from um, Empire Records. Uh, this was Edwin's first taste of success as a solo artist. Um, he was the lead singer of the Scottish band Orange Juice, um, for those of you who don't know. Uh, they did have a couple hits over the UK. And this was also his only taste of success on this side of the, the Atlantic. Um, it has a very mid-60s feel to it, um, kind of a typical Motown beat, um, kind of a northern soul type thing. Um, and it was actually, the intro to it was actually sampled from Len Berry's 123. And I actually heard that song a little bit ago, and I was like totally thrown off because I thought that I was going to hear this song, but it ended up being that one. Um, but it also has kind of like a lounge style vibraphone or marimba going and then a fuzz guitar going in it, which um, Edwin Collins says was actually not inspired by anything in the 60s. But he was actually trying to copy Ernie Isley's guitar tone from um, the Isley Brothers. Um, Who's that lady? Uh, but it, it when you put it all together, it still sounds 60s. Um, it probably does a better job of capturing that sound that most attempts at reviving the 60s did but there were two videos for this um both of which kind of continue on like the the swinging 60s thing that he was going for uh, there's like 
go-go dancers and stereotypical like swinging London type people in there. Uh, but the difference between the two clips is that one of them, they decided to shoehorn in uh, clips of Empire Records because, you know, why not? It was on the Empire Records soundtrack. Um, I've always really liked this one. Um, pretty good song. Um, peaked at um, number seven here, and it made it to number 32 on the regular top 40. Number 17, uh, Letters to Cleo with Awake. Uh, we've talked about Letters to Cleo on the show before, but it was ages ago. Um, but we have talked about them. Uh, but to recap, um, they're from Boston. Uh, they got their name from a childhood um, pen pal of front woman Kay Hanley, uh, whose letters always ended up getting returned to her. Uh, they had a big alternative hit earlier in 95 with Here and Now, which uh, appeared on the Melrose Play soundtrack. And um, now we're caught up with them. And um, this is their second single, and it was actually their last appearance ever on this chart. I mean, it is slightly less annoying than Here and Now. I didn't mind this one at the time, and I don't really mind it now. Um, it's okay. Um, I don't remember seeing the video for this ever on MTV, but it's very alt. <laughs> They're all wearing thrift store clothes. All the guys have Kurt Cobain haircuts. Uh, both the guitarists are playing Fender Jazz Masters. Uh, most of it is filmed in an abandoned building. I mean, they hit all of the marks there. And um, this was the song's peak on the charts. Um, Kay Handley ended up shifting to children's music um, after this. Uh, Lisa Loeb, who we had earlier, also did the same thing, by the way. Uh, but Kay um, sang the theme songs to My Friends Tigger and Pooh and um, Care Bears' um, Oopsie Does It. And she also regularly performs the Star Spangled Banner at Patriots games. And uh, the team once had an eight-game winning streak when she performed the national anthem. Um, that probably had a lot more to do with Tom Brady than her. But, you know, let's credit it to um, Kay Hanley anyway. Why not? Number 16, Weezer, um, Say It Ain't So. The last big single from the Blue Album. I'd completely checked out on Weezer at this point. Uh, what a difference a year makes. I'm not sure if I still had my copy of the Blue Album when this one came out. I did end up reselling it at the same store where the guys who made fun of me for buying it. Um, I had a different clerk this time around, and he didn't say a word. I, I'm assuming a lot of people were also reselling Weezer's Blue Album at the time. But um, this one is about alcoholism. Um, basically, uh, River, Rivers Cuomo's parents broke up because his dad had a drink, drinking problem. Um, his mom remarried, and supposedly this guy didn't drink. Um, but then Rivers came home after school and uh, found a beer bottle in the fridge and freaked out because he thought the same thing was going to happen again. And I will admit that when um, River sings Heine in this song, I originally thought that he was um, talking about somebody's ass and not a bottle of Heineken. And when he's saying this bottle of Stevens, I, I assumed that he was talking about like a bottle of like off-brand whiskey or gin. But um, it was actually the bottle, a bottle of Heineken owned by a guy named Steven, which is the actual name of River Cuomo's stepdad, by the way. 
<laughs> but um, this it's not as strong of a single as Undone or Buddy Holly. Um, it did do as well as those did on the charts. It did peak at number seven. Um, this is the last time that these guys are going to pop up in this series. Um, they did have a couple of minor hits off of Pinkerton, but they basically vanish for most of the late 90s. Um, the chart that we're doing for 96 skips over the two from Pinkerton. So um, this is the last time around for Weezer. Say goodbye to Weezer, everybody. <laughs> but it's number 15, um, Dandelion with Weird Out. Uh, Dandelion were for Philly. Um, they are led by the Mapurgo brothers, um, Kevin and Mike. Uh, Kevin sang and played guitar. Uh, Mike played bass. Uh, they were signed to the rap label Rough House, um, which was based in Philly and was also the home of uh, Schooly D, Cypress Hill, and the Fugees. Uh, Dandelion were kind of the token alternative band. Um, the rap labels didn't want to miss out on the alternative rock bonanza either. And actually Magna Pop that we had in our last episode were also on a rap album. So this wasn't an isolated case here. And this song was possibly the most blatant of all of the Nirvana ripoffs. It kind of sounds like on a plane and lounge act kind of mashed together. And Kevin Mapurgo is doing his best non-yelly um, Kurt Cobain imitation. Um, at the time, this one really pissed me off because I couldn't believe that people were falling for this. I couldn't believe that something that was this much of a ripoff was getting played on the radio. I didn't think that this one had a video. Um, I really only remembered hearing it on the radio, but it does. And it's even more of an alt stereotype than the Letters of Cleo video somehow. I mean, it was directed by the same guy who directed um, Beck's Loser video, um, which makes total sense, actually. And supposedly the fans were not um, really fans of this song either. And um, Rough House made, it put, made them put it out as a single against their wishes. Um, something which has happened a lot in the history of rock music. Uh, but Dandelion were really pissed off about it. So in every single radio interview that they did to promote this song, uh, they would say, we hate this song and the label made us put it out, uh, which ultimately ended up getting them dropped from Rough House Records. Um, so obviously we're never going to hear from them again. So say goodbye to Dandelion too. Uh, number 14, Natalie Merchant. Uh, this is the solo debut for the 10,000 Maniacs front woman. Um, apparently, the split with the other Maniacs wasn't exactly amicable. Um, she really wanted out of the band. And she told MTV at the time that she was sick of doing art by committee. So those guys hired another singer to take her place and just pressed on. And as far as I can tell, Natalie's never reunited with them, even as like a one-off type thing. Um, just a clean break with all of them. And this song was a lot quieter, um, a lot more subdued than anything else that was getting played on alternative rock radio. It kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, but in a good way. It, it's pleasant. Uh, th this one is mainly about Natalie's first trip to Manhattan. Uh, she's just kind of recounting that for everyone here. Uh, the video, not surprisingly, was also filmed in Manhattan. 
Um, it's in black and white, and we kind of follow Natalie around as she uh, snaps photos of various people and some of the scenes that she's describing in the song. It was on MTV a lot, which is kind of weird for, for this era. Um, they didn't normally play stuff like that. But um, both this single and the Tiger Lily album were more successful than um, anything Natalie had ever put out with the Maniacs. Um, this peaked at number 10 on the regular top 40, and the album went um, platinum five times over. So this ended up being kind of a victory for her. Um, she had a couple more alternative hits after this, um, neither of which uh, made the same sort of impact as this one. Um, alternative radio was already start of, starting to kind of move away from stuff like this. But um, she still performs and puts out albums. And when she isn't doing that, she um, volunteers as an art teacher in um, Head Start programs around New York City, which is kind of fitting for her, actually. I, I could see her doing that. But anyway, um, moving on to number 13, uh, Foo Fighters with this Sakal. Uh, the debut of the Foo Fighters, a band that will ultimately end up having 38 hits and 10 number ones on this chart. Initially, this started out as a small home recording project by Dave Grohl, who obviously was the drummer of Nirvana. Um, he had a bunch of songs. Um, he played all of the instruments. Um, he made up a fake band name. And he was planning on putting this out as just a very limited edition release, and that would have been it for them. Uh, but that all that all changed, obviously. Um, Eddie Vedder leaked out that Dave Grohl had a new band and um, played one of the tracks from this the first Foo Fighters album on um, Pearl Jam's self-pollution radio broadcast, which was syndicated on various alt-rock stations around the country. I, I know it was on one of the stations in Cleveland. I can't remember which one it was, and I can't remember if I tuned into that or not, but it was on there. Uh, but after it got on this Pearl Jam show, um, record companies started to take notice. Um, they wanted to put it out, um, probably because they just wanted something that was from Nirvana or somebody from Nirvana. But anyway, um, Dave Grohl ended up signing with Capitol. Um, he was still sort of planning on doing this as sort of like a one-off low-key thing until uh, Tom Petty, um, he was who he was actually temporarily uh, drumming for at this point, um, encouraged him to do the Foo Fighters as, as his next big thing. Um, so he, um, he hired former... Um, Nirvana sideman Pat Smear and picked up the rhythm section from Sunny Day Real Estate and uh, the rest is history, I guess. Uh, like all devoted Nirvana fans, I went out and bought this one almost immediately, um, even though I knew deep down that it wasn't anywhere near the same quality as Nirvana. Um, it's the only Foo Fighters album that I've ever bought. I still have it, but I probably have not listened to it in at least 25 years. Uh, this song is probably the weakest of the three singles from the album, um, though it was actually the biggest hit from here. So go figure on that. And we will be hearing again from these guys, obviously, um, because they're all over this chart. But anyway, on to number 12, uh, Lenny Kravitz with Rock and Roll is Dead. Uh, just another case where it just seems that he got 
we- seems weird that he got played on alternative rock radio at all. Um, kind of like Cheryl Crow and Seal from our last episode. But anyway, he really did get played on alternative rock radio, and he is going to be popping up again, believe it or not. But um, this is the first single from his Circus album, um, which was a follow-up to his big Are You Gonna Go My Way album. Um, Lenny is getting ironic on this one. Um, It's called Rock and Roll is Dead, but see, it's a rock song, so it clearly isn't. He's playing rock music, so how can it be dead? Um, It sounds a lot like Led Zeppelin. It's not really that special. It did peak at number 10 on this chart, and it inspired Prince to write an answer song called Rock and Roll is Alive and It Lives in Minneapolis. Uh, That one is better than this one, but um, Prince is wearing a Vikings jacket in the video for it, and I don't approve of that at all. I mean, they were in Minneapolis. They also wore purple, so I guess it fits, but, you know, it's the Vikings. So anyway... Um, Moving on to number 11, um, Alanis Morissette uh, with Hand in My Pocket. Uh, We we have another bigger Alanis hit coming up later on, so I'm just going to keep this one short. I didn't really like Alanis at the time. Um, She was on the radio practically every 10 minutes, so you couldn't get away from her. And this was by far the most annoying single from that album. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, This did go to number one, which isn't really that surprising for her. Okay, we're into the top ten here uh, with Blind Melon um, Galaxy. The guys for the B-Girl video are back, I guess. Uh, The galaxy in the song refers to uh, Ford Galaxy, not any actual galaxies. Uh, lead singer Shannon Hoon uh, bought a really cheap old Ford Galaxy while the band were recording this album um, down in New Orleans. And uh, whatever things got a little too tense around the studio or he just wanted to be alone, he would just uh, get out and cruise around town. In it. And originally this song was called I'm a Freak with um, different lyrics written by somebody else in the band. Uh, but Shannon got frustrated with this, went out in his Galaxy and wrote um, entirely different lyrics, which were mostly about him cruising in his car. Uh, this is one of the songs that surprised me the most on this chart. Um, it's way better than I remember. Um, in the choruses, they go into um, sort of a notorious Bird Brothers um, psychedelic country sort of thing, which is sort of cool. Um, Shannon was not long for the world when this one came out. Um, he had a pretty serious drug problem. And um, when he showed up for the shoot for the video for this one, um, everybody in the band was pretty alarmed by his condition. Um, He does seem pretty zonked out in it, but that was kind of the norm for most alternative videos. So I don't think anybody else knew or even noticed at the time. Uh, But he did die of an overdose just a month after this. Um, He went on an all-night binge after one of their shows And the rest of the band found him dead in their tour bus the next day when he um, didn't wake up for the sound check for the next show. Um, He was only 28 um, when he died. Uh, The other guys tried for three years to find a replacement before ultimately deciding to break up. They have reunited a couple times since then with another lead singer, but they more or less died when Shannon Hoon did. 
But anyway, on to number nine here. Uh, we have the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Warped. Uh, this was the first single from their One Hot Minute album, um, which came out just a few days before this chart. Um, One Hot Minute was their follow-up to their huge um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic album. Um, that album took almost two years to make, and in that time period, they did make it to the top of this chart uh, with Sold a Squeeze, which was actually an outtake for Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and um, it appeared on the Conehead soundtrack, believe it or not. And um, Dave Navarro had, from James Addiction, had just um, signed on to being their guitarist shortly before they went into the studio for hot, one hot minute. And from all accounts, he just kind of butted heads with all the other chili peppers constantly while they were recording this. And um, this song um, sounds a lot more like Jane's addiction than the typical chili peppers song. I was kind of surprised that Dave Navarro's name didn't pop up on the credits for this, but um, apparently he had no hand in this one. Um, shockingly i i remember hearing this one a lot at the time but it's kind of vanished from the radio since then um i can't remember the last time i actually heard it before i started doing the research for this episode but um the video for it was somewhat controversial at the time because um, anthony kiedis um kisses dave navarro at the very end of it and that kiss only lasts for like four seconds but it uh, freaked the record company enough where they just wanted the whole thing scrapped of um, something which the band ultimately refused to do and um the whole brouhaha behind this ended up getting mentioned on like mtv news radio uh, various magazines and stuff like that so it probably just ended up giving them more publicity for their album to be honest but um this one peaked at number seven um the one hot minute album would end up being the only full album that Dave Navarro actually played on uh, for the Chili Peppers. But we're going to talk about a non-album single that he played on in a couple episodes from now. Um, the Chili Peppers have more or less disowned this era. It's hard to believe that those guys would ever disown anything. <laughs> but um, they've rarely played anything from this album since 1996. So, Yeah. Number eight, um, Alanis Morissette, um, You Ought to Know. Um, well, what do you know? It's Alanis again. Uh, this was her introduction for most people in this country. Um, we missed out on her pop days in Canada. And though episodes of You Can't Do That on television did appear on Nickelodeon in this country before that, um, she wasn't really one of the big names in that ensemble. Um, she wasn't Alistair, Doug, Moose, or Lisa. And really, that show is very odd for a kid's show when you look back on it. I mean, half of the skits were about eating horrible food. And uh, like a quarter of them, somebody's either like chained up in a dungeon or about to be shot by a firing squad. And then in like the remaining quarter, like somebody either gets like slimed or doused with water. And on top of that, the thing's just completely Canadian, uh, very Canadian. <laughs> but anyway, back to this song. Um, the story for this one that everybody believes is that is that this one is about um, Alanis's failed re relationship with Full House star Dave Coulier. Um, a guy who was 15 years older than her. Um, people on TikTok and Twitter would have gone um, ape shit about that if um, 
either of those places existed in 1995, but they didn't. Um, he jilted her. Um, so basically, she wrote a song about um, giving him a blowjob in a theater. Uh, but the thing is that Alanis never really claimed that it was him. Um, there were other suspects as well, like um, NHL player Mike Peluso, um, Matt LeBlanc from Friends, um, her producer from her pop days. Um, Coulier himself has neither confirmed or denied that he's the su subject of it, uh, but his full Full House co-star Bob Saget did confirm it was him at some point. Um, Alanis is staying mum about the whole thing, so we'll never know for sure. Uh, the thing that stood out for me the most about this song um, at the time wasn't the part about the blowjob in the theater or the do you think about me when you fuck her parts. It was mainly just about how quickly this one shot up out of nowhere. Um, it went from debuting on the radio to being something that got played like every 15 minutes in a matter of days. And at the time she was coming to Cleveland. And I just remember like the venue of her show just like changing about three times into a bigger and bigger venues as the song took off. Um, she started off like where she was going to play like a little bar up in Cleveland and ended up playing like a couple thousand seat club. And then she um, headlined um, Buzzard Fest at Blossom, uh, which was the big amphitheater in the area about a month after that. And from what I remember, she started like much lower on the bill and like eventually did become the headliner there. I mean, all of this is nuts um, when you really think about it, but um, the song isn't really that special aside from like all the dirty gossipy bits. Um, I thought it was kind of annoying to be honest. And um, Flea and Dave Navarro, who we um, just talked about um, did play on this. I, I thought that Taylor Hawkins also played drums on it, but um, he was just in the video and in Alanis's backing band. Um, somebody else actually played on the song. Uh, this was number one for five weeks. Um, the Jagged Little Pill album um, ended up selling 16 million copies. And um, we're not actually done with that album. Um, one of those singles is popping up in 1996 on the chart that I'm doing for that. But on to number seven. Oh, God. It's um, Presidents of the United States with Lump. Uh, these guys are from Seattle. They were more or less a straight-up novelty band. Uh, they went through a few different names before settling on Presidents of the United States of America. And they picked it because they thought it was stupid enough to work. And apparently their label tried to make them change it because they are worried about the possible legal issues of using uh, the Presidents of the United States of America for commercial purposes. Um, but anyway, at the height of their popularity, uh, they played a show in front of Mount Rushmore. And at some point, um, Hillary Clinton made a joke at one of her husband's rally that they would be showing up instead of Bill, which I'm assuming was a total laugh riot. It was probably like Pokemon go to the polls level there. But anyway, um, enough about their name. Um, the song was inspired by um, their lead singer, Chris Ballou, having a benign tumor and a dream that he, he had about a woman living in a swamp. I'm okay there. Um, he just kind of combined those two together. Um, it's pretty annoying. I thought it was annoying at the time, and it still is. Um, it did go to number one, though. Um, why? 
Um, Weird Al spoofed this about a year later with um, Gump, which was about Forrest Gump. Yeah. Um, like Lisa Loeb and Kay Hanley, um, Chris Blue does do children's music these days. Um, his name while he's doing that is Casper Baby Pants, uh, which is possibly a worse name than Presidents of the United States of America. Uh, but shockingly, this won't be the last time we'll hear from these guys. Um, they are popping up again, unfortunately. Uh, number six, um, Goo Goo Dolls with name. Um, Soul Asylum's replacements. And speaking of replacements, uh, this song sounds an awful lot like the band rep the replacements. Uh, their later stuff, anyway. Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls have acknowledged uh, the replacements as a primary influence, so it's guess I guess it's not really that much of a surprise that this would sound like them. Um, and their lead singer, Johnny Resnick, actually has the funniest line in a replacements documentary that came out a few years ago. Uh, called Color Be Obsessed. Uh, basically, um, in his little scene, he mentions that he got Paul Westerberg's number at some point and called him up and said, is this Paul Westerberg? The Paul Westerberg who wrote Otto? And then Paul hung up on him. Um, Otto's from one of their earliest albums. It's possibly the funniest song to bring up to Paul Westerberg or to ask him about. Uh, but any anyway, enough about the replacements here. Uh, this was the third single from their uh, Boy Named Goo album. Um, the first two were more rock-oriented and also sounded like The Replacements, but they went nowhere, so um, they had to pull out their big ballad. Um, supposedly, this was inspired by Resnick's relationship with MTV VJ Kennedy, uh, which I somehow never knew. Though, unlike um, You Ought to Know, both parties have acknowledged this. <laughs> it is about her, actually. Um, it's not a bad song. It's kind of pleasant, but I did get really sick of it after a while. And this is their best big single, though. I, I will say that. Um, this was a number one on both this and the mainstream rock charts. It also made the uh, top five on both the adult contemporary and the regular top 40 charts. Uh, two more hits came off the Boy Named Goo album, and um, they ended up becoming a force uh, both here and on the regular Top 40 a couple years after this. Um, we will be hearing from them more a few times. Um, yeah. So on to number five here. Uh, the Gin Blossoms, Till I Hear It, with, um, Till I Hear it From You. Um, another song from the Empire Records soundtrack. Um, this one was co-written by Marshall Crenshaw. Um, a guy who the Gin Blossoms were big fans of, and they didn't know him before they worked on the song with them. Um, they just happened to be on the same bill at a festival with it, with him and um, asked him for help with the song, and he obliged. And um, the end result was probably their best song. I mean, it, it does sound a lot like some of Crenshaw's other songs. I'm not sure what percentage of the song he actually wrote and what percentage the guys from the Jim Blossoms wrote, but it, it seems like it may have been more his. I mean, who knows about that? Um, but there were two videos for this, um, one with just the band, which is the official video on YouTube, and one that is made up entirely of clips from Empire Records. And I definitely remember seeing the Empire Records version of, of this more at the time on MTV. 
Uh, but this one was released as a double A side with uh, Follow You Down. Um, double A sides were sort of a rarity in the 90s. I mean, they didn't really, I mean, it was technically it was a double A, like a single or CD single, I guess. But um, this was their biggest single on the regular top 40. Um, it peaked at number eight there. And this was actually its peak on this chart. Um, it ended up being left off of their um, next album, um, Congratulations, I'm Sorry. And this was either because the band wanted the entire album to be written by themselves. They didn't want Crenshaw's contribution on there. Or because their record company thought that its inclusion would um, hurt the sales of the soundtrack for Empire Records, which they also owned the rights to. I, I couldn't find out which story was true. But they made one other appearance on the charts, but um, this is the last time that we are going to hear about them because they didn't make the charts after 1995 or early 96. But anyway, on to number four, um, Better Than Ezra with In the Blood. Uh, these guys were, were from Louisiana. Um, they formed at LSU, and eventually they all moved on to New Orleans. Uh, the band name is sort of a mystery. Um, the band has never really offered an explanation other than it's saying it's so lame that you would never want to print it in a magazine. Uh, my theory is that it's just a pun of better than ever. Um, I mean, that's pretty lame, so why not? Um, anyway, this was their follow-up to their big single, Good, um, which topped this chart a few months before this. I never really had positive or negative feelings about this song. It was just kind of there, just kind of blended with everything else. I checked out the video for this, but I didn't really remember it at all. Um, these guys were definitely more of a radio phenomena uh, than an MTV phenomena anyway. So that's probably why um, it's nothing special. It's just a typical 90s video. Nothing to write home about. Kind of like the song. Uh, it's, uh, number three, number three, we have Green Day with J.A.R., um, with Jason Andrew Relva in parentheses here. Um, it's the guys who topped our last chart. And this song is very typical Green Day. Um, that's pretty much all you can say about it. Um, Jason Andrew Relva was a childhood friend of bass player Mike Durnt, um, who died in a car wreck a couple of years before this. And this was sort of his tribute to them, to him. Um, it was recorded um, during the Dookie sessions, but it ended up being cut from the album. And it um, later ended up on the soundtrack of the movie Angus. Um, remember Angus? Of, of course you don't. Um, this one made it to the top of the chart almost on crew career momentum alone um it's nothing special um we aren't done with these guys on the series yet um more green day is coming uh don't worry about that uh number two bush bush uh was come down uh these guys were probably my least favorite band at the time i've gone into th this before um when we were still doing steals on the show i actually picked two of their songs mainly so I could rant about them. Um, but basically, I didn't think they were genuine. I It seemed like they were sort of hopping on the grunge bandwagon. 
which I later found out that they were. They started out as sort of like an NXS style band. But anyway, I didn't like them. I didn't understand why anybody else would like them either. But this was the third single from their 16 Stone album. Um, this was slightly better than the two songs that preceded it, which were uh, Everything Zen and Little Things, but that's not really saying much. Though I will say that it's unfortunate that there is nothing in the lyrics for this that is funny as uh, My Willy is Food, <laughs> which pops up in Little Things. But it's this it's kind of a boring grunge by numbers type of thing. Um, that's pretty much all you can say about it. Uh, this did go to number one on this chart at the end of the summer, and it was also their first entry on the top 40 the regular top 40 and that was mainly just because they uh, released a physical single so it was eligible uh, we will be hearing from bush again unfortunately well i'm just gonna pretend that this is live here and that i'm ne definitely not recording number one on <laughs> the next day after i publish the episode uh but at number one we have silver chair um these guys were a bunch of teenagers from australia um, at the time, they were all 16. Uh, they took their name from the book The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, which was part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, though at the time, they were claiming that their name came from a mix of um, Nirvana's Sliver, which they thought was silver, and um, Berlin Chair by uh, the Aussie alt-rock group um, UMI. Uh, but before settling on that, they were known as the Innocent Criminals, um, the Silly Men, uh, the George Costanza Trio, and Short Elvis, um, all names that only teenagers would have come up with. But um, they won a Battle of the Bands competition on Triple J, which was the big Aussie alternative station, um, nationwide alternative station, um, about a year before this um, with this song. And the prize was an actual recording of the song in a studio um, and a video, um, both of which kind of ended up serving as demos for them. Uh, the video that they made as part of their prize for this was a lot different than what ended up airing here in the States. I've never seen this before, but it's kind of hilarious because they all look like they're 10 in it. Um, apparently, they all went through like growth spurts at some point in um, early 95. Uh, but anyway, they, they ended up getting a record deal as a result of this, um, re-recorded the song, and uh, redid the video with uh, Mark Pellington, who did um, Pearl Jam's Jeremy. I haven't seen this video in ages, but man, oh man, did they shoehorn like every single um, 90s video cliche into this one. Um, they should have gone with the one where they looked like they were 10. I mean, that one's better. But I seem to remember this song taking off nearly as quickly as You Oughta Know did. Um, but that one, with that one, it sort of made sense. I mean, it was risque. It was scandalous. Um, this was just a shitty grunge song. Um, this is the first time that I'd heard this one in ages. And it's sort of been forgotten by radio. So I, it's been at least like 20 years or so. And I was shocked by how bad it was. I mean, it was just really painful to listen to. And I was kind of wondering why it became a hit. I mean, was it because of the novelty of a bunch of teenagers doing this? Uh, were people just that desperate for anything grunge? I mean, who knows? Uh, but this one was really inescapable for a while, and I really hated it. 
I, I was kind of surprised that uh, most of the contemporary reviews of it were positive. And not only that, but most of them pointed out, like, if they can do this when they're 16, just imagine what they'll be able to do when they're 20. Well, I'm from the future. I heard what they did when they were 20, and yeah, it all sucks. And unfortunately, uh, some of those songs are going to be in this series. But this was um, number one for three weeks. Um, it was Billboard's number one alternative song of 1995, even though um, Live's Lightning Crashes did have a much longer uh, run at number one. But this somehow won out for some reason. I don't know how Billboard does that. But anyway, um, that does it for this episode. Um, as I sort of alluded to, um, the audio cut off like midway through like silver chair when I originally did it yesterday. And I went back and listened to it tonight and um, it was just like, Oh, that's, that's where I'm wondering, wondering if it's just like cutting off or, or why it's cutting off here, but came back home and basically just re-recorded this. And um, for the next episode, um, Let's see, we are going to 1996, but it's a little bit later in the year. It's going to be December 7th, 1996. Uh, Todd and I did an episode that covered like October 96 on the alternative charts about a year ago. And I wanted to have like some different songs on that and basically just not do an episode over. But that's what you're getting next time. Um, that's installment number three. So... Uh, thanks for listening and um, see you next time. Bye.